Well, good morning. It's good to be with you today. Uh, if you're uh, a guest with us today, we're glad you're here. My name is Tom Allen. I'm one of the staff members here. Our Pastor Michael and his family are on a well-deserved vacation and will be returning soon. And as such, I'm, I'm filling in for him today. And so we're going to take a departure from our uh, sermon series in Matthew entitled Kingdom Come. And uh, our message today is in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 13. So you can open your Bibles to chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians. Uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, the uh, Blackbound Pew Bible in front of you uh, will do. It's on page 959 and 960. And we're going to focus on the first seven verses of 1 Corinthians 13 today. As you turn there, uh, if, you've been, uh, if you keep up with the news, uh, one of the stories that has uh, had a lot of coverage over the last few weeks in the media was a group of uh, 12 boys and uh, their soccer coach who were trapped in a flooded cave system in Thailand for nearly three weeks. Uh, in late June and the earlier part of this month, rescue teams from all over the world descended on Thailand and were trying to come up with solutions to get these 13 people out of a very dangerous and grave situation. Now, the rescue turned into a race against forecasts of heavy rains and deteriorating levels of oxygen and other poor conditions in the cave. But amazingly, uh, all 13 of them were brought out alive. And during the rescue efforts, one of the things that got a lot of attention was billionaire entrepreneur Elon Musk volunteered help, including the donation of a small submarine-like craft that could be used to bring the boys out safely. And following the rescue, uh, one of the rescue team members actually criticized Musk and uh, accused him of seeking to use the submarine as a PR stunt. Musk has since retaliated against uh, that person on Twitter and then later issued an apology for uh, the, the baseless and critical things that he had to say about that rescue team member. And so Musk went from being seen as this generous philanthropist to being seen by some, at least, as a selfish and arrogant spotlight stealer. And whether you believe his intentions were good or not, the story reveals that even in the world, people care about why and how we do what we do. We don't like the thought of good things being done for selfish reasons. And that's exactly the problem that's going on in Corinth that Paul is going to address in 1 Corinthians 13. One commentator has called 1 Corinthians 13 like the filling or the meat in a sandwich between the bread pieces of chapter 12 and 14. Apparently the Corinthian church was exemplary in knowledge and spiritual gifting, but they were lacking in the more foundational aspects of the Christian life. They had become characterized by divisiveness and partisanship. They relied too much on human wisdom instead of the wisdom of the gospel. They cared too much about appearances and lofty speech. They were boastful and arrogant. They put up with sexual immorality in the church. They took their grievances with each other to court in front of unbelievers. They misunderstood and misapplied God's intentions for marriage and gender roles. They put stumbling blocks in the way of weaker Christians. They grumbled and were idolatrous. They treated the Lord and each other contemptuously when they came together for communion. It seems in many cases they really didn't love one another. In the text we'll look at today, Paul insists that a person without love is ultimately useless. And then he shows us what that love looks like. So look with me in 1 Corinthians 13. We're going to focus our attention on verses 1 through 7. 
It says, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. We're going to divide our passage into two parts today and consider verses 1 through 3 and then verses 4 through 7. So let's focus our attention first on the first three verses. The first point today is that despite powerful manifestations of the Spirit, a person amounts to nothing if they lack love. Despite powerful manifestations of the Spirit, a person amounts to nothing if they lack love. I want to point out something in the text that uh, was sort of new to me as I prepared for this, that Paul is talking about significant issues in the Corinthian church, but he does it without attacking them. He says, if I speak in the tongues of men, if I have prophetic powers, if I have all faith without love. He loves the Corinthians and corrects them with gentleness and does it by placing the examples and the burden onto himself. The love and gratitude that Paul had for those people is clear as you read the letter. And I thought about this as it applies to parenting. Rebecca and I frequently tell our kids, probably not frequently enough, when we discipline and correct them, that we love them. That may not be believable to a five-year-old who's just received a spanking, but it's true nonetheless that discipline and correction is a mark of love. It's a manifestation of our love that we discipline and correct them. In fact, not correcting them would be quite unloving. If we left our kids to their own devices without discipline and correction, they would quickly end up hurt, dead, or incarcerated. We don't want that for our kids because we love them. When we see them headed down a road that leads to destruction, we correct them. Yes. Love does that. Right, Josiah? <laughs> I parent even from the pulpit. So what's going on here in 1 Corinthians is not the theological musing of an otherwise disinterested third party. This is the real tangible love of a person for fellow believers. And rather than pointing the finger at them, if you speak in tongues, if you prophesy, if you have all faith without love, Paul turns the attention on himself and says, even if I speak in tongues, and even if I have all knowledge and all faith, and even if I give up everything I have in my own body to be burned, without love, he is nothing. So Paul puts the burden on himself in this passage. But the application is for all of them and likewise for all of us to see love in our own lives. So look in these first three verses and let's see how tongues, prophecy, knowledge, faith, and personal sacrifice don't benefit a person if they lack love. And we'll begin with tongues. It's clear as you read through 1 Corinthians 
that the Corinthian church overemphasized certain spiritual uh, gifts to the neglect of not only other more important spiritual gifts, but worse, to the neglect of each other. And it appears they were fascinated with tongues, and they highly esteemed people who spoke in tongues. This may be at least partly responsible for the factions that had grown up in the church that Paul addresses in the early chapters. It may be that cults of personality had grown up in the Corinthian church around people who exercised more ostentatious or more showy spiritual gifts. And some people, it seems, were guilty of using those gifts not for building up the whole body, but to elevate themselves, to build themselves up. And so I want to be clear on the front end of our sermon today as we're dealing with a passage that discusses various spiritual gifts that it's, it's not the goal of this sermon to develop a doctrine concerning charismatic spiritual gifts. If we were to preach 1 Corinthians as a whole or if we were to do a topical sermon on spiritual gifting, this is certainly a passage that we would consider. Um, but this is not a sermon that's meant to give us a specific doctrine on the use and practice of specific spiritual gifts in the church today. It's really not about the gifts themselves, but what we want to think about today is the relationships that we have among believers in the church, how and why we do the things that we do, which is included, including but not limited to the use of gifts and service in the church. So I want you to keep gifts, I want you to keep service in mind, but really I want to keep our relationships with one another in view primarily. So Paul imagines a scenario where he could speak in foreign languages or perhaps even an angelic dialect, but without love. And what's the result? He says, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And notice that it isn't the gift that is noisy or clanging. He is. I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Paul isn't devaluing the gift. If you read 1 Corinthians and you come to the conclusion that Paul uh, devalued the uh, importance or dismissed the importance and benefit of spiritual gifts, then you've got it wrong. Paul's primarily concerned here not with the gift, but with the person who is gifted, but who lacks love. We're reminded of John 13, where Jesus gave his disciples what he called a new commandment, that they love one another as he had loved them. Elsewhere, Jesus taught that the greatest commandments in the law are summed up as loving God with the entirety of ourselves and loving our neighbor as ourselves. So love is a big deal for Jesus. And if you're going to call yourself a Christian, love for God and love for other people is non-negotiable. And I think it's worth mentioning here that Paul's scenarios are not just theoretical. Paul did speak in tongues and Paul did prophesy. God had revealed mysteries of the faith to Paul that come out in his writings as he explained things not previously revealed to saints of old. So we're not dealing with someone who can only theorize about these things, but someone who knew firsthand what it looked like to possess and use the very gifts that the Corinthians prided themselves in. So go back to verse 1. The person who speaks in the tongues of men and angels but lacks love is just a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. I think what Paul's getting at here is that the person is at best irritating and at worst harmful. It's not a problem with the instrument, but with the musician. To help us understand his meaning, he picks up the metaphor of musical instruments in his conversation about practicing tongues in chapter 14. There Paul says that tongues without an interpreter are like instruments that don't play distinct notes. When that happens, the people who would derive some benefit from listening are unable to because the instrument is not being played properly. So no matter the spiritual gift we have, 
or no matter the service we perform to the church, if our practice fails to meet God's intentions, we bring harm rather than blessing to those around us. Paul moves on to imagine a scenario where he has prophetic powers, understands all mysteries and knowledge, and has a supernatural gifting of faith such that he could even move mountains. But he says even in that case, if he doesn't have love, he is nothing. I find this absolutely remarkable that you can prophesy, you can know everything there is to know about spiritual things, you can have not just some faith, but all faith that results in God doing incredible things, but if you don't have love, you are nothing. It reminded me of Philippians 1 where Paul talked about certain people preaching the gospel out of envy and rivalry and others out of love. And Paul rejoiced in the preaching of the gospel even among those who did it for the wrong reasons. He didn't commend them for lacking love in preaching the gospel and neither should we. But Paul still rejoiced in the preaching of the gospel. So even the good spiritual things that we know and do even if it is the sharing of the gospel, does not attest to our character and can be done without love. So the character of the person using the gift, their reason for using the gift, and the manner in which they use the gift are of the utmost importance. That's why people take exception to the thought of Elon Musk using this uh, grave and terrible situation in Thailand for his own gain and attention. Even if his idea had worked, should we ultimately commend him if his intention was to elevate himself? That's the point Paul is driving home here. He doesn't say that the tongues are false or demonic. He doesn't say that the prophecies and the knowledge are flawed. He doesn't say that the faith is lacking. The deficiency is in the person. Lastly, in this section, Paul imagines himself as one who gives away all of his possession or even, uh, possessions or even makes the ultimate sacrifice of himself, but without love. Now, uh, I'm reading from the ESV. The, the way that it is translated in the ESV is if I deliver up my body to be burned. I think a better way to understand Paul's meeting, perhaps a better translation, your, your, man, your uh, footnotes in your Bible may uh, refer to this, is a possible translation is, if I deliver up my body that I may boast. And I think that really captures Paul's intention here. It's possible that we make the ultimate sacrifice for the wrong reasons, that we might boast. It could be so that people think well of us or to make a name for ourselves, but the result is the same as being saying all along. He gains nothing. Rebecca and I have a, a same nightly routine every night before we go to bed, just about. We're fans of the old TV show, Monk. Any Monk fans? I see a few hands. Uh, Mr. Monk sees a therapist named Dr. Kroger on a regular basis. And one of uh, Dr. Kroger's other clients, named Harold, competes with Monk for Dr. Kroger's attention. They're constantly trying to one-up one another. And in one episode, Harold actually jumps in front of Dr. Kroger to take a bullet for him. As he's losing consciousness, Harold weakly calls Monk to come over. Monk leans in, and Harold says, Beat that. <laughs> Harold was willing to die, not because he loved Dr. Kroger, but because he wanted to stick it to Monk. Paul says there's no gain in that. He is nothing. 
He's developing scenarios that are really possible and therefore should be guarded against. It's possible to do showy spiritual things in order to be seen and praised by other people. It's possible to have all the head knowledge but still be a jerk to people and to use what you know pridefully. It's possible to give your money, possessions, and even your life away so that you'll be well thought of. Possessing and using even the most impressive spiritual gifts does not attest to the character of a person. Even the most sacrificial works are devoid of moral value if real love doesn't govern them. So as we look at our own lives, as we think about the relationships we have, and particularly those in the church, which are in view in 1 Corinthians 13, as we consider the gifts and talents we have and how we use them, we've got to think about whether or not love is the motivating and governing factor behind and underneath everything that we do. Now some of us are guilty of not serving at all, which also ultimately comes from a lack of love that fails to build up the body. But this text is more, uh, aimed more squarely at those who are using gifts and serving quite possibly in very visible ways. And the tricky thing is whether or not a person actually loves people is not necessarily discernible as they exercise their gift. You can teach a Bible study so that people will think you're spiritual and smart. You can cook a meal for someone and still slander them behind their backs. You can greet someone at the door of the church and resent them for something they did to you. You can work in the children's building and be irritable and impatient. You can serve on a committee and be mean to people. You can give money so the church will bend to your will and think of you as generous. You could be a deacon and insist on your own way. You can be on staff at a church and be rude. I could preach this sermon about love and tell you the dangers of not having love and not have love. And if I do that, I am nothing. In the end, what we're seeing is that despite powerful manifestations of the Spirit, a person amounts to nothing if they lack love. We've got to look within and see what areas of our lives and relationships could be characterized by I do this, or have this, or give this, but I do not have love, and therefore I am nothing. So it's natural for us to ask then, what is love, once we understand that love is necessary? It's not just part of the Christian life, it's essential and foundational. Love is at the heart of the gospel in God's grace to us in Christ. It's what enables us to love Him and others. So to fail to love is so egregious that the Bible tells us we're liars if we don't love others and claim to love God. So the second point is this. Love cherishes and selflessly seeks the best interests of others. Love cherishes and selflessly seeks the best interests of others. In Greek, there are several words that are translated into English as love. And the one that Paul uses here in 1 Corinthians is agape. Now, I don't want to spend too much time trying to make hard and fast distinctions between those Greek words and their usage, for one, because I don't understand them myself. And two, I'm not sure that that's really Paul's emphasis here, is trying to get us to understand three or, different four, three or four different definitions of love. But we should be mindful of the fact that in Greek, generally speaking, there are different ways of communicating God's unconditional love for people and romantic love or brotherly love, for example. 
So when Paul uses agape here, he's picturing this kind of true, pure, abiding love that is the very nature of God himself. When John says God is love in 1 John 4, 8, he says God is agape. God has poured this love into the hearts of his people through his spirit that we might love him and love others with the overflow of his life-giving love. It's this kind of love that Jesus says, if we have for him, we will obey his commands. This is the love that begins the list of the fruits of the Spirit in Galatians 5. This is agape. So this part of the text deals with the actions and affections of love at work. I like Sam Storm's definition of love, and I've borrowed part of it uh, for today. You're going to see it behind me. Storm says, Love is the overflow of our delight in God that joyfully cherishes and seeks the best interests of another regardless of the cost to oneself. The overflow of our delight in God that joyfully cherishes and seeks the best interests of another regardless of the cost to oneself. That kind of love is manifest in self-giving and seeks the good of other people for the glory of God. If I love someone with agape then my joy comes from pursuing their joy, even at great cost to myself. And the fascinating thing is that what I gain in finding my joy in the joy of those I love is that those blessings far outweigh whatever I have to give up. Agape isn't characterized by begrudging other people, but by cherishing them so that their joy is my joy. I think this is why it makes sense when the Bible teaches on marriage for it to say that he who loves his wife loves himself. Or think about a person giving a gift. What does love look like? Love is not only evident in the action of giving the gift, but in the affections that produced a desire to give it. And the joy that you receive from seeing the person that you love enjoy the gift that you gave them. That's one way to understand Jesus saying, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Their joy is my joy. And love is meant to be on display across all relationships. It applies to other believers, to our spouses, to our kids, to our neighbors, and as we'll see in Pastor Michael's next sermon, even to our enemies. We're concerned today primarily with relationships in the church because of the context of 1 Corinthians 13, but the application extends to every relationship that you have. Love is to govern who we are and what we do and why we do it in every way. Paul describes what this love looks like in verses 4 through 7. And so again, the point is love cherishes and selflessly seeks the best interests of others. Look with me in verse 4. First, Paul says love is patient and kind. Patience and kindness are also on Paul's list of fruits of the Spirit, so it's not surprising that we see them here in helping us to define love. So if I love someone, my disposition toward them is not one of impatience or meanness, but one of patient endurance. And we are to love regardless of whether or not the person is lovable, Amen. whether or not they love us in return or if they are slow to receive or appreciate our love. In the context of this section of the book dealing with spiritual gifts, we should be patient and non-judgmental with people as they serve or as they preach a sermon. We should offer constructive help rather than harsh criticism. 
Anything we say or do should be seasoned with kindness so that what we're, what we're after is not simply to unload our opinion on someone, but to build them up. And if we see someone we believe is guilty of serving without love, we should patiently and kindly, gently and selflessly pursue them with biblical correction. The aim, the goal, is not to be proven right or to prove someone else wrong but to build up the body in love. And since it's possible that we might be patient on the outside, but really hate someone in our hearts, love is both patient and kind. Look back to verse 4. We're told that love does not envy or boast. These are like two sides of the same coin. On the one hand, love is not envious, or covetous of what another person has, whether that be a particular gift to serve or anything else they possess. Love is content in God's provision and does not envy what belongs to others. On the flip side, love doesn't boast about what a person has which other people lack. Love recognizes that everything we have comes from God. So boasting about what we have has no place in the life of a Christian. In Ephesians 2, Paul says that salvation by God's grace through faith is not our own doing. It is all the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So boasting is contrary to the gospel, and it violates love. Next, love is not arrogant or rude. A better translation might be love is not arrogant or puffed up. The phrase conveys the idea of being inflated with pride and elevating yourself above other people. And we've already seen that love doesn't boast. So there's no place for arrogance and self-aggrandizement in a life of love. Selfish hate is what is inflated with ego, but love is meek and humble. Love rejoices in the joy and successes of others rather than putting the spotlight on their own personal achievements. Love desires to use gifts and talents to see God glorified and others built up and is not concerned about receiving credit or applause. Love is John the Baptist watching his ministry give way to Jesus and saying, He must increase, I must decrease. Further, love does not insist on its own way in verse 5. Love is content to defer to other people, to set aside personal preference, to be second and to promote others. Love uses the gifts that we have to see others built up and then rejoices when that happens. When Paul talks about spiritual gifts in Romans 12, it's interesting to me that he tells the people to use their gifts properly and to use them enthusiastically, and then he follows it up immediately by telling them to let love be genuine and to love one another with brotherly affection. Our relationships and service in the church should be characterized always by an others-first mentality. And we, we don't do this begrudgingly, but joyfully, because love says their joy is my joy. Yes. Next, love is not irritable or resentful at the end of verse 5. Another way to put this is saying love is not easily angered, and love keeps no record of wrongs. Ask yourself if you're the type of person that often has a nuclear, angry response at the ready. Are we looking for a chance to erupt on people as soon as we perceive something? Are we overly sensitive and defensive? If we face criticism, even unloving criticism, how do we receive it and how do we respond to it? 
Love has thick skin and is able to cover over offenses. And then what is our attitude to those that actually have wronged us? Not only is love slow to anger, but love lets go of anger that comes when we have been sinned against. Love doesn't keep score. Love forgives and forgets. Love doesn't seek an opportunity to bring up past wrongs. All of us know someone, and and we may be that someone, that could be described as having a short fuse. The fuse gets shorter if we're tired or frustrated about something at work or at home or struggling with something. And as your fuse burns more and more, you reach a tipping point. Maybe something happens, something said to you, and you blow up. Have we ever stopped to think that having a short fuse isn't just a personality issue, but it's actually sin? Are we not commanded to be slow to anger? I'm just as guilty as anyone, and my irritability often comes at the expense of those closest to me, especially my wife and kids. And that's sin. Being quick to anger is sin. Exploding in anger is sin. Wherever this is present in us, we have to repent. Look in verse 6. Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. This means that we don't delight when others fail. It's sin to gossip about the sins and shortcomings of other people. I think we're prone to do this when we learn about something, learn something about someone we have a hard time loving. We become validated in our lack of love when the difficult people in our lives fail. In fact, we might be hoping that they fail and fail publicly for that reason. How hypocritical are we to hate people we accuse of being hateful? When Pastor Michael preached on mourning earlier in the Kingdom Come series, we were taught that all sin should be mourned. What's our attitude when a difficult person in our lives does something sinful or foolish? Do we rejoice in that? Love doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing. Love mourns over sin. The flip side is that love rejoices with the truth. Where truth is proclaimed or believed, love rejoices. Look at verse 7. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. The last section here uh, hits on how love endures difficult circumstances. I thought of Ephesians 4, 2 that tells us to bear with one another in love. Love doesn't give up on people. Love assumes the best instead of the worst about people. Love chooses generosity over cynicism. Love doesn't jump to conclusions. Love has an optimistic outlook regarding other people and looks for and applauds the best in them. Lastly, love endures or always perseveres. Love doesn't quit, even in the most painful trials. Now, as I was preparing for this, I wanted to make sure I communicated that what we're advocating here is not a life of naive or wishful thinking. People are going to sin against you. I will sin against you. You are going to sin against people. We will have to have hard conversations with people. Love doesn't ignore the reality of sin in our lives or in the lives of other people with rose-colored glasses on, but love shapes the way we deal with sin and why we deal with it in the first place. So as we come to the end of this passage, I think it's important to consider not just the definition and characteristics of love that we've seen in this passage, 
But I think it's worth considering the nature of love itself. As I was preparing for this sermon, I was struck by the commentator's different takes on the nature of love. And then I think in the world at large, we can see that too. Some people will emphasize love as a feeling and say love is not so much about what you do or what you don't do, but it's about the feelings in your heart about another person. In other words, I could love you without a specific action on your behalf. Others will emphasize love as an action and say that love can really be boiled down to a self-sacrificial benevolent act for another person and that personal affection and feelings really aren't a part of the equation. I think the picture that the Bible paints of love is actually both affection and action. It's incompatible with Scripture to remove actions on someone's behalf from love. God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, calls to mind, that love acts. But love isn't indifferent or cold to the one being loved. Love is full of emotion. God's love for us makes us His dearly beloved children. Paul uses the language of emotion in 1 Corinthians 13 to show us what love is and is not. He uses words like kindness, envy, arrogance to describe what love is and what love is not. Think of how it would sound to tell another person, I love you, but I feel nothing for you. Is that really love? If I bring my wife flowers and I coldly say, I love you. I have no affections or feelings for you whatsoever, but it's my Christian and husbandly duty to give you these flowers. I love you. That's nonsense. That's ridiculous. That's not love. The portrait of love in the Bible is framed with action and painted with affection. So remember our second point, that love cherishes and seeks the best interests of others. And we know where this love comes from. It comes from God because God is love. He's demonstrated his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. In Christ, we see the marks of love like patience and kindness and humility and endurance on display in perfection. So what do you do with this passage? If you're here today and you know yourself not to be a Christian, then the horizontal relationships among people that we've been primarily talking about today are not where you should begin. You will never be able to love people if you don't have the love of God poured into you through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is a gift from God to Christians. We must repent of our sins and turn to Christ alone for salvation. He is the love of God on display to save sinners through His perfect life, sacrificial death, and resurrection. Those who trust in Christ are forgiven of sin and filled with the Spirit through whom we receive the love of God. And it's the love of God and only the love of God that will enable us to love others. So if you aren't a Christian, then today we urge you to receive God's love and forgiveness in Christ by God's grace through faith in Jesus today. If you want to know what it looks like and what it means to follow Jesus, I'd love to talk to you afterwards. Jeremy would love to talk to you. There are a room full of people who love God and love you and would share with you the hope that we have in Christ. Amen. Talk to someone today about following Jesus if you are not a Christian. If you are a Christian, this passage calls us to really look within, particularly as it relates to our relationships, and examine ourselves for where we lack love. God's love is to overflow in our lives in the lives of Christians who would take joy in loving others. We have received grace, so we must extend grace.
We have received mercy, so we must love mercy. We have been forgiven much, so we must be quick to forgive. We have eternal joy and peace with God, so we must rejoice in the joy of others as they experience the same. We are loved, so we must love. So ask yourself this, Christian. Who, how, and why am I not loving? We need to use the characteristics and definition of love for some concrete and tangible means of doing this. Is there a person, people, or group with whom I am impatient or even unkind? Who are the difficult people in my life that I struggle to love? And how must I repent of that? Do I envy what others have or boast about what I have? Am I an arrogant attention seeker? Is my attitude my way or the highway? Am I easily angered and do I hold grudges? Those are the marks of hate. And there is no place for hate in the kingdom of God. Some of us have people we need to seek out today and we need to confess sin and ask for forgiveness and be reconciled. And we recognize that none of us are perfect. Like it was with the Beatitudes, none of us can come to 1 Corinthians 13, read what love is, and say, I am really awesome at all of this. Christians are redeemed, but still imperfect sinners. Our fleshly desires and our new nature are at war with one another. We are going to sin against one another. How many people have left a church or the church because they were under the false illusion that the people there would be perfect and not sin against them and that they wouldn't sin against other people. Sin is real and it's going to happen. We're not going to love flawlessly and perfectly. But this is the standard of love that we're called to. Our love for God and others is the essence of the Christian life, Jesus says. If you disregard that, you disregard the gospel. So the stakes are high. John really means it when he says, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. If your life is characterized by unrepentant hate of others instead of love, albeit imperfect love for others, then the Bible says that you are not a Christian. So whenever we see in ourselves the distance between who we are and who we ought to be if we're in Christ and who we will ultimately be for all eternity in Him, we're called to repent, to seek forgiveness, and to pursue love in the power of the Spirit. So I want us all to take a minute now as we prepare to close to ask God to bring to mind situations or people in our lives where we are not loving. If you realize in so doing that you aren't a Christian, then I'm pleading with you today to be reconciled to God. Repent of your sins and trust in Jesus alone. All of us in here need to confess our lack of God, lack of love for God and for each other. We need to pray that through the love of God that's manifest in Jesus and in us through the Holy Spirit that God would transform us more into the image of Christ and that as He does that, our actions and our affections for other people would be such that we will experience the truth of Jesus' words that by all this... This, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. This is what's at stake. Not only does love among Christians exalt Christ and benefit each other in the church, it shouts to the world the truth of the gospel. Do you want to glorify God? Do you want to be a blessing to those around you? 
Do you want people to hear and believe the gospel? Then love. Let's pray. Lord, we rejoice to know you and to be known by you. And when we come to your word and are confronted with our own lack of love, when I'm confronted with my own lack of love, my impatience, my unkindness, my pride and boasting, my selfishness, my insisting on my own way, my rudeness, my acts of service that I might be seen and praised. God, your word brings us to our knees before you. We are sinners. We do not love as we ought. Not one of us in here does this perfectly. We thank you, God, for the assurance of salvation that if we are in Christ, that these sins are not ours to bear, but they have been born in the body of Christ on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, that we might live a life of love for you and others. God, we recognize that this is impossible in our own strength. This love comes from you. It's out of the overflow of love that you've poured into our hearts that we have anything loving to offer to those around us. God, we thank you for doing precisely that, that in Christ you have filled us with your Spirit. You have poured the love of God into our hearts. And so, God, help us as we think about your word today to know what love is and what love is not, to recognize the folly of living a life without love, that we are nothing and gain nothing and amount to nothing, even if we do the most impressive and showy spiritual things apart from love. Teach us patience and kindness. Teach us meekness and humility. Teach us what it means to put others first, to defer joyfully and not begrudgingly, to take joy in the joy of others. To not seek applause or praise or fame, even for the most self-sacrificial things we might do. God, help us to keep our eyes set on you. And in so doing, that we would love you and love others with a kind of love that can only be explained by the fact that we are your disciples. Let our love for one another, God, be a gospel witness in this community and to the ends of the earth, that people who are in and among us would see this love and desire it for themselves, that they might know you, that they might receive your love, be filled with your love, and extend that love here and to the ends of the earth. The gospel is at stake in these things, Lord, and so we pray that you would impress the gravity of these things onto our hearts. God, we thank you for the great love that you have for us. We have not first loved you. You have first loved us and given your son for us. And so it's in his name that we ask these things. Amen.